You're listening to the free abridged edition of the Energy Transition Show. American coal. Nuclear energy. Natural gas. Hydro. Solar power. Wind turbines. We're becoming a monumental exporter of natural gas. This boom in the United States is not a bubble that's going away. The oil's still there. I'd rather pump it from another country and save ours, and then when the rest of the world runs out, hey, guess what? We can still turn on our lights. We've run into a problem where we have constraints, where there are limits now. The new phase we're going into related to the exhaustion of these resources, there's no replacement. This is a one-shot affair, and we're unprepared for it. Really, we do not have very much more time to get a handle on this problem. It's better to get to a renewable future, a sustainable future, sooner rather than later. Get there before we do the environmental damage, not after. For June 24th, 2020, this is the Energy Transition Show with Chris Nelder. At a time like this, when everything feels so uncertain and even downright dangerous, it's tempting to think that everything is broken and to be despairing about what rebuilding our economies and ways of life will look like. It's easy to be pessimistic and to think we'll just turn to the cheapest and most available technologies to get the engines of commerce moving again. And for people of a certain age, they might think that means firing up coal plants and diesel engines as quickly as possible. But that doesn't seem to be what's actually likely to happen next. As it turns out, clean renewables, not coal and diesel, are the cheapest and most available technologies in many cases now, and it's actually cheaper to build a new wind or solar farm than to start up an idled coal-fired power plant. And the trends that are so essential to progress in energy transition and climate action are already so firmly entrenched that we should expect them to maintain their leads as we begin to restart and rebuild the world's economies. The momentum that has been building around decarbonizing power generation, electrifying transportation, and swapping electricity more generally for things that used to be powered by petroleum... Well, these trends haven't gone away by any stretch. They're enduring, and in fact, there is good reason to think they will accelerate in the coming years. It's also tempting to think about the last global crisis, the financial sector crash of 2008-2009, as an analog or a guide to what happens next. But that's also really too easy, and probably not that helpful. The world is actually quite different now than it was a decade ago in some very important ways, especially when talking about energy transition. We're not worrying about peak oil now. If anything, we're more worried about too much cheap energy. Not just cheap oil, but more renewable power than we can use in certain places and times. So much so that wholesale and even retail grid power prices can go negative. And we're seeing an investment community that is now much more interested in the winners of energy transition than the losers. So to take the pulse of energy transition at this ever-so-uncertain moment, I asked my old friend Nat Bullard of Bloomberg New Energy Finance to come on the show and share the latest and greatest research from their analysts, as well as his own expert observations on the energy transition in general. He's a close observer of energy transition and has been for over a decade now, and frankly, it was about damn time I invited him to join our conversation here. I know that all of our listeners will find more than a few hopeful observations and interesting insights into what he has to offer today. Then in the news segment, we'll look at another new report on the state of energy transition worldwide. We'll check out some surprising data on consumer interest in bicycles as a coronavirus adaptation strategy. We'll explore a new kind of auction for renewables in India. We'll note a surprising move toward 100% renewable power right in the heart of American oil and gas country. And we'll hail the world's first ultra-high voltage electricity line designed to carry only carbon-free electricity. And now our conversation with Nat Bullard, recorded May 20th, 2020. So let's bring him into the conversation now. Welcome, Nat, to the Energy Transition Show. 
Thank you for having me, Chris. It's good to be here. Yeah, I think I'd like to start with some highlights from the executive factbook presentation you published in April, along with BNEF's CEO, John Moore. It's a comprehensive look at the state of energy transition with about 100 pages of charts and interpretations on the trends and current situations for CO2 reductions, electricity, transport, industry, commodities, food and agriculture, and capital markets. It's you know a big picture view of everything. And I thought it was refreshing to see all this data nicely condensed in one presentation. So I'd like to review some of that data and then move on and talk about where we seem to be going next, particularly in light of the impact that the pandemic lockdown has had on everything, which is a topic that you've been writing about pretty extensively lately. So let's start with the state of global warming. We're really not making much progress on that at the global level, are we? Not particularly. If you look at the trends that I've laid out in this presentation that my colleague John and I did, You can see a trend line going back to the mid-1700s of us pumping more carbon dioxide into the atmosphere than natural processes are one way or another removing from it. And we have very small occasional dents in those patterns over time from things like war or a global financial crisis or what we're likely to see this year, a pandemic. But Even the pandemic-related shutdowns that we're starting to see this year are just the kind of stuff that if you wanted to get to a net zero emissions world, you would have to be doing every year for quite some time. Yeah. I mean, when you look at the chart, it looks pretty much like a jagged straight line for decade after decade. It just keeps on rising. And 2019 was the second warmest year on record. So there's clearly a warming trend for the past 40 years that we have to deal with here. Another thing that I thought was interesting about that particular slide is it showed how weather-related natural disasters have been increasing since around 2005, which is another indication of sort of the way that the damage to the climate and its stability is increasing. Absolutely. I mean, the thing about this is even if we have a downtick in what we emit for any given year, the atmospheric concentration just keeps going right on up. I mean, it's a pretty seasonal overlay onto a very consistent upward trend. And, you know, we have more people every year. We build more stuff every year. We therefore have more things that are at risk, especially in coastal areas or in low-lying areas, of the impacts of this warmer world on the human part of the Earth system in which we're operating. And yeah, that's just risk piled on top of risk, and it doesn't necessarily look like it's going to get any better anytime soon. But that's at the global level. And when we zoom in a bit and we look at more regional trends in specific sectors, we do see some real progress on energy transition and on reducing CO2 emissions, don't we? Absolutely. I mean, it's sort of surprising even for a relatively senior analyst like myself to just sit back and take a close look at decomposing one of these long-term trends and see that Yeah, I mean, advanced economy emissions are pretty much where they were in the early 1990s, whereas the rest of the world and within that, a very large part of that is two economies, uh, that would be China and India, are continuing to grow. But even then, it's always important to look at not just the number, but the vector. And, you know, the vector in this is that the trailing growth rate in emissions for the rest of the world, not the OECD, has gone from like 7% about a decade ago to now in the range of less than 2% per year. So we have energy-related CO2 emissions growth has really slowed significantly, that's pretty clear, and has been stable for two years now. And really, we're seeing now a clear 
difference between what's happening in the advanced economies of the world where emissions have been slowly declining uh, for about a decade now uh, and the rest of the world where all the growth is happening. But even there, they really halted their steep growth in energy-related CO2 emissions and have almost gone flat, like including China and India. That's right. And given today's suite of technologies and business models and market approaches to energizing and powering the world that we have, we do need to look very, very closely at what the future paths might look like. I think it's a challenge, again, even for very senior people to remove the example of China from the picture and think about what the rest of the world might be like in terms of what pathway are other countries beginning their energy journey right now likely to follow? Are they likely to follow the China path given the fact that China does produce about half of all of the world's cement, about half of the world's steel, aluminum, copper, all of those sorts of things. Are we likely to see other countries embark on that exact same path or not? And are we likely to see industries becoming cleaner, especially the hard to decarbonize sectors? That's right. And in fact, that's a huge focus of the work that my colleagues and I have been doing for the last couple of years and that I expect we'll be doing for the next decade, which is I wouldn't call the challenges in electricity solved necessarily in terms of decarbonization, but the tool sets are there to make a significant decarbonization of electricity, which is great. And then you sort of have to move on to the next thing. You know, the things that 10 years ago would have been considered impossible to decarbonize and are now simply difficult. But, you know, electricity looked the same way too 20 years ago. So we need to think about how we're going to advance this progress by in a large way, probably pushing as much of that decarbonized electricity into other sectors as possible. We're going to drill down into the details of this a little more in a few minutes from now, but just at the high level, how is investment in clean energy looking? So, I mean, it depends on which lens you want to put on it. If you put the dollars lens, well, it's been above $300 billion for the last six years now. It's down from its peak in 2017 of just under $400 billion. You mean per year? Per year invested in wind, solar, things like that. That's the sort of top line in dollars. Now, with declining costs for equipment underneath, you actually have more being installed every year. So there's sort of kind of two pictures that you would love to see an increasing dollar value in any sector that you want to see growing. But you should also be sort of comfortable with the fact that if you have a significant decline in capital costs in one year, investment dollars that are the same or even slightly lower than they were the year before implies more build of the things that you're looking to build. You know, I remember seeing a lot of articles over the past two years about the rate of investment in clean energy slowing down or declining. Does that actually mean that the energy transition writ large is stalling out or slowing down? No, it doesn't. I mean, the first thing is, even if the dollars are tapered off, when you look at capital costs for, say, solar modules that have come down 90% in 10 years and wind turbines have come down 50%, what that means is that you have a levelized cost of energy that's being built by this new investment in clean energy that's generally the most competitive electron pretty much anywhere in the world. I mean, our latest data has about two-thirds of the global population being served right now with brand new electrons from wind or solar that are the cheapest source of electricity that could be built anywhere. So because the costs are coming down, even though the dollar amounts invested may be flat or declining, the actual capacity being built could still be increasing. The capacity built is still being increased. And the capacity that's being built, I should add, is also 
So it's sort of generally better, like it, you know, things work better, or they work at higher efficiencies. They're increasingly being integrated with energy storage, which is another technology that has had um, almost 90% decline in price over the last 10 years. So the system that's being built for each dollar is better than the one that was being built with the previous dollar, let's put it that way. Right. Okay. So I just wanted to address that common conception or misconception in some cases. What other indicators of progress are we seeing? If you want to look at indicators of progress, I've got a bunch that I would want to lay out in sequence. The first is that actually the most installed technology in terms of capacity on the global grid in the last 10 years was solar. And after that, it was coal, although almost all of that was in China. There was more wind installed than gas. So you basically have a couple of technologies really that dominate the global deployment stack. If you look ahead too at what countries are making progress where, you know, the two countries that really, as I've already mentioned, are kind of set to blow the global carbon budget, which is India and China, are also now the leaders in renewable power generation capacity auctions. Like basically the most highly cost discoverable way to get the least cost renewable energy electron onto the grid. Hmm. Solar technologies, you look at the price of the module, are down 90% over the last decade from more than $2 a watt to $0.20 cents a watt. Wind turbines are down from about $1.50 a watt to just barely over $0.75 cents a watt. These sorts of things are also not just price indicators, but there's quality that goes on underneath them, which is the new module that's being built today is higher efficiency than the one 10 years ago. It probably lasts longer. It probably has better warranty. Wind turbines are now built to work in different wind resources. They're designed to last longer. Sometimes they can now go offshore. Everything that goes along with them is increasing in quality, not just in the sort of quantitative measurable cost. Lithium ion batteries are down 85% in cost in the last decade from more than $1,000 a kilowatt hour to observed last year, $156 a kilowatt hour. We expect it to be below $100 a kilowatt hour by 2024. And you wrap all these things together and what you end up with is a competitive position for clean energy that is, well, competitive is one way to put it, but it's generally, I would say, out-competitive against basically everything in almost every electricity market. So you now see unsubsidized costs for onshore wind and for solar PV generation, unsubsidized, I always have to mention that, that are in the range of $50 a megawatt hour or lower. And that's going to be probably the cheapest new electron you can add to the grid in just about every big market you can think of. Yeah. My colleagues like to break this out on a population-weighted basis, which is that the cheapest new electron you could add to the grid for two-thirds of the world's population for 71% of global GDP and for more than 80% of global power generation. Hmm. Incredible. Yeah, I know it is. And it's something that I think even those of us who observe closely need to make sure to be very aware of. And the message that I think needs to be conveyed very clearly, ideally through this very capital intensive lens. Yeah, especially because I think because the clean energy transition really began in advanced economies in many ways, we've had this, at least for the past decade or so, we've had this view that you know, wind and solar may be coming cheap in places like the UK or Netherlands or the US or whatever, but coal is still going to be the dominant fuel for the emerging economies for, for China and India, for Southeast Asia more broadly, et cetera. But we're seeing that's, that's really no longer the case. And in fact, 
not only have the U.S. and the U.K. and other advanced economies significantly decarbonized their power generation fleets in just the past five years, with major declines in coal power and wind and solar making up about half of the replacement power, with natural gas making up roughly the other half, that renewables are quickly gaining an edge worldwide, with the large majority of new generation capacity everywhere coming from wind and solar, not from gas and not from coal. That's correct. I mean, at a certain point, it's hard to argue with highly discoverable prices and clear unit economics if you're a central planner. We do know, and I know from my experience dealing with planners all over the world, is that there does tend to be some planning inertia in looking at incumbent technologies, and in particular, the group of vendors that you spend a lot of time dealing with to an extent the way that you were educated about what the power mix is going to look like. But I think it's very important. We see more and more of this happening. People looking to the data from an adjacent market, looking where there's a high degree of discoverability on prices and costs and saying, well, it at a certain point becomes hard to say no to a $30 a megawatt hour electron that has zero CO2 associated with it. For sure. You know, one of the interesting questions that transition watchers were asking around a year and a half ago was whether the world would continue building new gas-fired plants, because that had become kind of the preferred new source of power generation, or if we had hit peak gas and renewables would actually start to come to dominate the demand for new power plants. Do you think we have a clear answer on that now or clearer? I think we have a bit of an answer and let's work through it and see exactly how clear it is. I think one of the challenges here is that in the United States, the competition is between gas and between renewable energy. But in most other markets, it's between renewable energy and something else a lot of times it's a competition between renewable energy and coal. Now, I think what might change that would be a long-term expectation of much lower gas prices, in particular for LNG. And that would kind of reinvigorate a competition between the gas market, whether it's base node or peaker, renewable energy and coal. And we start to see a bit of that competition happen in some places in Asia. But you know, this is short-term highly liquid traded prices for gas versus fixed prices for renewable energy. So as I said, it's a little bit more clear that we have a long run competition between renewable energy and coal, particularly in Southeast Asia. But I think gas has a near term more competitive position based on pricing that is really, really quite low compared to its historical average, but it's not necessarily guaranteed to stay that way. Okay, so those are really important observations about the price of the commodity itself. But what about the trend in terms of actually building gas-fired power plants? Do we have any indication of whether or not that's continuing to rise, or does that seem like that's starting to flatten out as well? Well, what we do expect when we run our new energy outlook, and bear in mind that we're running our new one right now, given all that we know about the global state of power markets, and we'll have it published probably in a couple of weeks, is that the growth in gas does come from the peaking market globally. Hmm. And if that is the prevailing competition, then the competition is actually going to be not necessarily between peaking gas and renewable energy or coal. It's going to be between peaking gas and energy storage. Hmm. That's a really important point, especially as we're seeing storage really start to catch on here. That's right. 
Okay, well, now that we have several major economies with substantial shares of renewable power on their grids, we're beginning to see the effects that that's having. And I think there have been quite a few surprises here, particularly over the past five years. For one thing, no one seems to have had any trouble keeping their systems balanced with these large shares of variable renewables, contra the thing that we were all told some years ago that at some percentage, 5, 10, 30 percent, whatever, that these grids would fall over, that there would be blackouts because renewable were quote-unquote intermittent. And we're also seeing that they're having an overall effect of driving down power prices on wholesale power markets. So again, you know, both of these realities are the exact opposites of the claims that the losers of the energy transition were making a decade ago. If you went back 15 years, right, the answer was renewables are unreliable and expensive. Right. If you want to build them, you're going to have to subsidize the cost of generation and also you will have a higher cost of delivered power to everybody. Base loads are essential because the demand is always going to keep growing. And those verities of 15 years ago are really very easily questioned right now because you can look at all of these grids and see that renewable energy is the cheapest thing that's being generated. Grids are much more reliable than engineers gave themselves credit for. And, you know, I hope that engineers are pleasantly surprised with how much more reliable things are than what they had expected. The grid is much more decentralized, which has a resiliency benefit that we haven't probably yet seen pay off right now, but I have the feeling in the future could become very valuable. And then you look at a market like, let's say, Chile, where increasing wind and solar generation has sent spot power prices absolutely down to the floor compared to where they used to be in the middle of the decade. Yeah, And also another thing within that that people I don't think gave much credit to was that there is in some grids complementarity between different types of renewable resources. So Brazil was a fantastic example of this where hydropower, which mind you is a much more significant at the moment source of power generation than wind, is actually a perfect complement to its slightly more variable upstart friend above the ground. So what you see is like the seasonality that comes in hydro production when it dips is when wind is peaking. Hmm. So again, these are things that I don't think were well apprehended, if you will, 15 years ago, even 10 years ago as people were looking ahead. But I think that we'll find perhaps pleasant surprises like that as systems come along. And the other thing is that I think people just simply need to be designing for this in mind rather than assuming that you have to fit the characteristics of variable energy sources into a grid that wasn't previously designed for them. Yeah. And I think both of those points really highlight just the fact that 15 years ago, we were working with models. Like we really didn't know how this stuff was going to work. Now that we actually have it operating and we can see how it works, we can start to appreciate how all these different dynamics are actually fitting together. And it turns out our models were not really capturing the full (laughs) dynamic reality of how this stuff actually works, you know, which is, I think, an important realization that, you know, a model is one thing, but actually building it is another. And putting it into operation and seeing how it actually works in reality is a different thing. And I think that's particularly relevant when we're looking at questions like how much storage will we actually need on a system that's 80% renewably powered 20 years, 30 years from now, whatever. These kind of fraught questions that generate a lot of debate amongst energy analysts and modelers right now, but it's so far in the future. And I look at it and go, you know what? 
there's no way to know. You have no way to know how much storage is actually going to be needed either for grid balancing or for seasonal power provision 20, 30 years from now, and you don't know how it's going to work, and you don't know how all the resources that come onto those systems over the next 20 years are going to actually change the dynamic character of the way the grid operates. And dynamic is exactly the word for this. I mean, like if you look back at even a pretty large power system that was being planned, say, 50 years ago, you had a total number of units that probably numbered in the hundreds, maybe in the thousands of things that provided electricity to an entire country. Yeah, We're now talking about tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands, or in the case of every residential solar installation, tens of millions of generation units being put in. And they challenge the sort of centralized and very linear thinking and planning around building a system. The other thing, and I say this in a good way in my experience, is that no one ever tells this stuff to the project developers who simply go out and do it and then go to their customers and say, would you like all the energy I can give you at $15 a megawatt hour? Mm -hmm. There's a distribution of decision-making process in building distributed energy resources that challenges a lot of the way that people thought and planned before. Like if you were in the old days, I'll step back with a little local anecdote here. There's a coal plant that is now decommissioned, but it's just down the river from Washington, D.C. And I took interns there on a plant tour in 2008. And we asked the plant engineer, what's the story? And he said, well, this plant was built in 1949. There are two others that are identical down to the rivet that are across the river and down the river because back then... Power demand was growing at such a rate that why build one when you can build three for three times the price? And General Electric and the state utility commissions just sat down and did it. And I asked, I said, when is this thing going to come offline? And they said, never. Like, we're never going to take this thing away. It has a dedicated rail spur that gets coal from West Virginia. It's six miles from the load center. And the economics are unassailable. But that kind of planning doesn't exist anymore. And instead, it's being challenged by a whole bunch of highly distributed decisions and highly distributed planning by all of these other little developers that are looking to sell on the margin. And when the system in particular here in the United States isn't growing really much at all, all these marginal things really start to have an impact at the heart of the previously planned system. And that plant is gone. Despite what the plant engineer said that this would be around forever, it was shut down because it went out of economics very quickly, and that was it. Hmm. Again, just sort of as a cautionary point, there was definitely a challenge. There still is a challenge in terms of modeling this stuff, right? Because 10, 15 years ago, when we were looking at questions like, well, how much variable renewable power can a grid support, we were not modeling what the effect of tens of millions of little rooftop solar systems would be. So I think the key point here is that modeling tends to be pretty gross in terms of big chunks that it works with, and it really can never probably capture the full dynamic reality of how this stuff actually gets deployed and how it actually works. I would hope that my colleagues at BNEF do their best. Oh, I'm sure so they do. Doing. I mean, I'm sure all the modelers do. Right. But, you know, one of the things that your listeners will enjoy in there is that 
in order to do this, we now have to think about diffusion models for consumer uptake and things yeah. like that. You know, we have to start thinking in ways that I'm sure somebody sitting down with graph paper and a ruler in the 1960s didn't do, which was population grows by X, electricity demand grows by some function of X. Let's just draw straight lines and fill it in with stuff. Right. That's not what we have happening here. And it's also not what we have happening, honestly, in most of the markets that we look at. We hope you've enjoyed this free sample of the Energy Transition Show. Our full episodes cover much more and are generally at least an hour long. In addition to two full new episodes each month, subscribers can also view interactive transcripts of our interviews and explore our extensive show notes with links to all of the research resources and news items for each episode. Our subscription podcast works in all podcast apps and players, including iTunes, and is downloadable. The first 33 episodes of the Energy Transition Show were free and always will be, so if you want to see what our full shows contain, feel free to check those out. Then we hope you'll become a member and support our show. In order to bring you the most unfiltered, unbiased, honest information we can produce, we have elected not to take any sponsors or advertisers. 100% of the revenue that makes the Energy Transition Show possible comes from listener subscriptions. To become a subscriber and enjoy our full offerings, just point your browser to energytransitionshow.com and click the Become a Member button. There are several ways to become a subscriber. Annual subscriptions, which include full access to our entire back catalog of full-length episodes, are just $60 a year or $5 a month. Monthly subscriptions are just $6.99 a month and give you access to the two most recent episodes. Single episodes can be purchased for $7 each. We also offer half-priced annual subscriptions for universities. Students can purchase individual subscriptions, or professors can purchase bulk subscriptions for their classes. Numerous educators now use the Energy Transition Show as coursework, and their testimonials are available on request. And finally, we offer site licenses with group discounts on annual subscriptions for all members of institutions, such as corporations, nonprofits, and universities. So join us today and support our ad-free, hormone-free, organic, handcrafted, artisanal podcast featuring high-quality, cutting-edge interviews and news about the most important story of our time, energy transition. And now a quick look at some recent news items. Item 1. According to a new joint report from the United Nations Environment Program, or UNEP, the Frankfurt School UNEP Collaborating Center and Bloomberg New Energy Finance, the world added 184 gigawatts of clean power capacity in 2019, a 20 gigawatt increase over 2018. But investment dollars were about the same at $282 billion, which demonstrates that costs are falling. Nearly 78% of the net new generating capacity added globally in 2019 was for renewables, excluding large hydro, indicating that renewables are overwhelmingly preferred to new fossil fuel plants worldwide. Some 826 gigawatts of new non-hydro renewable power is already planned by 2030, or about a third of the nearly 3,000 gigawatts of renewables that the authors estimate would be needed to limit global temperature rise to under 2 degrees C. Put another way, if the world built only as much renewable power capacity each year for the next decade as it did in 2019, it would amount to about two-thirds of the amount needed by 2030 to keep within the two-degree temperature limit. So it certainly seems doable to increase the rate of deployment and meet that target.
Energy transition records set in 2019 include the highest solar power capacity additions in one year, the highest investment in offshore wind in one year, the highest renewables investment ever in developing economies other than China and India, a record 21 countries and territories investing more than $2 billion each in renewables, and the largest financing ever for a solar project at $4.3 billion for the Al Maktoum IV in United Arab Emirates. Item 2. Bicycle sales, especially for electric bicycles, have been skyrocketing around the world as people look for ways to get around without being in enclosed public vehicles in order to limit their exposure to the coronavirus, according to a recent article in The Verge. London-based Brompton, which makes folding bikes, saw UK online sales increase by 5... Well, that's it for this episode of the Energy Transition Show. Thanks for listening. You can find our show archive and give us feedback and suggestions at energytransitionshow.com and follow us on Twitter at Transition Show. Our theme music was by Mike Sugar and Mark Burnfield, who you can find online at mikesugarmusic.com. The Energy Transition Show is a production of the XE Network.